0: of what it does for our church, our community, the energy that it gives, the enthusiasm, the sense of community to see all the students come together and, and love each other, love God and love our community. It's just huge. It really is. And it's a it's a great segue into the rest of the semester on into the summer. I mean, it really sets a good tone for us students. Thank you for not making it an event, but making it a lifestyle. And I do appreciate that, that there's lasting fruit coming out of that and not just a temporary feel good that tickles your ears. But, um, but I'm excited about that. Let me ask this question of all of you in here. Um, raise your hand if you would call yourself a leader. You say, yeah, I'm a leader. Raise your hand. Okay. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, I would call you a liar, um, <laughs> is what I would do. We're all leaders. And I think the reason that we sometimes hesitate to call ourselves a leader is like, well, I'm not really qualified. I'm not, good enough. I, I've messed up too much. Or, man, the people I've tried to lead before didn't turn out well. Or, or we have all these excuses to say, no, that's not me. I'm not a leader. But I would tell you that God has called all of us to lead. And, and we need to get a different view of leadership if we're really going to own what God wants us to do. And, and, and we, we've messed it up in this way, because I would say that leadership is about influence. See, but that's not the first word that comes to most people's mind when they think of leadership. One of the first things that comes to mind is this. So a leader has power. So that's what we think. A leader has power. they got power that's there. If, if leadership was power, then Chuck E. Cheese would not exist. You're thinking, well, how does that make sense? Well, think about this. I'm the parent. I have the keys. I have the car. I have the money. I have the power. But yet somehow I end up at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> I would never go to Chuck E. Cheese if I had the power. But I don't. Our kids have power. They have influence to get us there. So leadership is not about power. Well, then we say, well, leadership's about position. You have a title. You have letters after your name or before your name. or You have this, this position that's there, that's, this hierarchy. That makes you a person of, of leader. I would beg to differ again. Um, I bet no one in here knows who Nick Uren is. I, I, Nick Uren. No. He's a special assistant and scout for the Golden State Warriors. Like, what is that? Let me tell you his job description. This is what he does. He makes the playlists for practice and divides the team into teams when they have bowling tournaments. That's his job. You would say, that's not a leader. He has no position. He has nothing in there. All he does is pick the music for practice and then divide the guys up so they can go bowling together. No, but he's the one that did this. He's the one that suggested the first year that they played the Cavaliers in the finals. He suggested that you bench Andre Bogut, which you don't care about, uh, Andrew Bogut, and put Andre Iguodala in the starting lineup. Much smaller, faster person, but that was the key to the Warriors beating the Cavs in the finals. It wasn't about position. It was about influence. And he had influence in that situation. I think that leadership involves influence, and the influence that we're talking about here when we look at it in this environment of church is this idea that That leadership is moving people to an agenda, specifically God's agenda. We influence people to get onto God's agenda. Now, it seems kind of easy. We're like, yeah, who wouldn't want to get on God's agenda? We got his book and it's great and we'll just follow it and it'll be fantastic. But that's just not the case because the problem is not everybody has an agenda. Not everybody wants an agenda. And not everybody wants God's agenda that's in there. But yet we're called to influence people to do this, and, and it's not the same as, as God's agenda. So spiritual leadership is asking us to influence others to do something they don't want to ne- necessarily want to do. There's a, uh, a professor at Harvard. His name is Heifetz, I think is how you say it. Anyway, he's from Harvard. He's smarter than me. But uh, although I went to the, to the Harvard of Texas, Sam Houston State, just for the record. I need to get an amen over there. Come on. And uh, but this is how he defined leadership. And I love this definition. He said this: leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can handle it. The ability to disappoint people at a rate they can handle it. I thought, man, that's that's my youth ministry. <laughs> that's just, that's <laughs> what I've done for 20 years here. And but it's, it's so true when you look at it in that picture. It's it's not so much taking people where they want to go. It's taking people where they know they need to go but don't want to get there. And you do it through disappointments. And we've all faced those disappointments. You know it's something you needed. So it's something you should probably do or, or somebody be or a sacrifice you should make or whatever it is. And you have that. But yeah, I'm not sure I want to do it even though you know that's the best thing to do. And leadership is the influence to get people on board with that, to, to definitely be able to handle the disappointment and the resistance that a group of people can have against what's good for the greater core of the people. See, we we push against that because we want our agenda. We want what feels good to me, what's going to make me happy. And as long as I get what I want, then I'll get on board with that agenda. But can I tell you that God's agenda doesn't always give us what we want, but it will always give us what we need, always. And, And so we have to understand this as leaders to manage this disappointment in order to move people to a place that they need to go. And, and I, I deal with this in student ministry a lot. You guys deal with it as parents. You guys deal with it on teams. You deal with it with it all these things, this goal, this agenda, this, this idea that's there. And God has, has many that He wants for us in His Word. But yet we're resistant because it's going to cost me something or it's not going to make me feel the best or it's not going to get me the most things, whatever those things are that are important. There's a leader in Scripture that I want to look at. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings. Second Kings 18, and then we're going to jump over to numbers, to the real popular books of the Bible. Second Kings 18 is where we're going to go. Just the first five verses is what we're going to look at, and I'll unpack that for a minute. Second Kings 18, it says, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. So we get his family history. We get kind of who he is. We recognize, okay, he's 25 years old and he has been given the kingship. He's been given this position. He's been given this power, but he's not a leader yet. He's, he's a young man, 25. We don't even let president be uh, United States until they're 35. But, but here he is in this situation. Now, verse 3 is where it starts getting real personal for him. It says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted the Lord. Get this verse five. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. All right, now that's God saying this in here. He's saying, best king of Judah ever. There was never one like him before. There was never one like him after. This was the man. This was the guy. This is the one that was right here. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he did such a great job that God said, no one was his equal. That's pretty significant right there. But what made him so significant? What did he do that was so great? Well, he told us right there. He told us right there in verse 3, he said, did what was right, what was right. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Like he started just destroying idols. The people had gotten comfortable. They're like, we got this, this is fine, we want to worship this, that, the other. The Asherah poll was about sexuality. There were other things that they were worshiping that were pleasurable to them. That's what they went with, their feelings and the pleasure. That was what they were pursuing. And so they're, they're after these things and it says, he's going to break these idols down. Which makes perfect sense in there. I mean, idols would be easy to recognize. I used to I have to go to a Chinese restaurant and see the little Buddha statue or something, rub its belly, right? That was my always idea of an idol. But then God convicts my heart and says, no, 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 that's not an idol in your life, Alan. That's just a statue at a restaurant. But what about sports? I not want to talk about that, God. I mean, why do you set your DVR for games so you don't miss them? Why do you set your DVR for shows so you make sure you don't miss them? Why are those things so important to you, but you can't even make time to read your Bible every day? What about your wife, Alan? Back off my wife, God. That's my wife. Why do you love her more than me sometimes? Why is your goal to please her before pleasing me? Because if you please me, she will follow. Come on, God. Like, this is about idols from the Old Testament. This isn't 2018. I don't want to deal with my idols but he's bringing it up here. And here's Hezekiah who had the guts and the boldness to go break these idols and he's destroying them. He's knocking them down and that's good. And and these idols that that are obvious to pagan gods, but the idols that are less obvious are the ones that steal worship from the true God, that steal our affections, that become higher priorities. And I know I'm not just talking to myself on that one because we live in a culture that, that pursues those things. And so we give this affection to the other things, and, and that makes sense. But then there's one that he did that doesn't make as much sense. It says, it says that he, uh, he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Well, that doesn't seem to make as much sense. These pagan gods, that's easy to get rid of that stuff. Well, this is something Moses made. Like, this was God-ordained. Like, God wanted him to build this, right? Like, that's this relic that was there, and, and it wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like knocking all the other idols down and went, Oh, no, that one fell, too. And it broke. Sorry about that, God. He intentionally broke it. It wasn't an accident. He broke this thing. Well, why would he break that? Well, it says that they were making offerings to it. They were literally burning incense to this this statue thing that Moses had made that that he called the the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Well, I want to look at what this relic is. I want to look at this thing and try to understand why that's different from this and maybe make some sense out of it. So turn to Numbers chapter 21. We're going to jump over to Numbers now. And it's at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible. I'm sure you spend lots of time there in Scripture with it. Maybe you will after this. Numbers chapter 21. We'll start in verse 4. And it says, From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea. Now, They've been freed from Egypt and the captivity that they were in. So kind of setting the scene for you here. And they're on their travels to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Now, that would never describe us, would it? We never become impatient. We never say, God, I really want what you want, but I want it now. It's been five minutes. You must not want it for me. I'm moving on. Like we we become very impatient with God, just like they did. And they're walking around. The people became impatient on the way. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. That's a big thing to speak against. And they said this, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Did they forget what was happening in Egypt? Did they forget the slavery they were under and the working conditions that were there and the living conditions that were there and the heaviness that was on them? It sounds like they're saying, you're taking us out of Disney World, man. Now we're walking around. You took us out of that. Have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, because that makes tons of sense. We have no food, and I hate this food. Do you have no food, or do you have food you don't like? I mean, come on. Don't we do that to extremes all the time? I can never do this. This always happens to me. See, we live in these extremes when our emotions begin to take over, and we get so inwardly focused. And that's where they were at in the situation. We have no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. So here's how God responds. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, now, there's stories in Scripture that I love to, to have seen. I would love to have been there when David killed Goliath. I think that would be an awesome thing to watch take out the big guy. I mean, the slingshot. I would love to have seen. I'd love to see when Elisha was fighting the prophets of Baal and the fire fell and it burned all that up. I mean, I would love to see, I would love to have seen when those five loaves and two fish are distributed among thousands and thousands of people. I would love to have seen some of those things. Can I tell you, this is the worst case scenario for me ever. Like, I don't want to be in this situation. Like I hate snakes. I don't want Best snake is a dead snake. They are terrible, and they are dangerous to me, and they scare me, and I don't like them. And we're going to make them on fire with torches coming after you. Like, I don't want to be in that scenario. I don't want to be... Hey, God, let me check out something in history. All right, I'll put you here. Ah, I mean, these snakes coming and biting you with fiery teeth. I mean, this is horrible. This is, I don't ever want to experience this situation, but this is what's going on. And so verse seven, and the people came to Moses and said, I'm guessing they screamed and cried, not said we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. How many times have we done that? We messed up and something bad happens. God, I'm so sorry, Please take it away. Uh, how many times have our kids done that? How many times did I do that? Don't take away my keys, mom. I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Give me my keys back. Like, we just whine and complain, even though we know it was our fault. Um, so, please pray to the Lord that he take the serpents away. Look how Moses responded. So, Moses prayed for the people. His first response was not to speak to them. It was not to say, calm down. It was, not, it was to pray. Is our first reaction to pray? Is our first response to pray? How many times have we said, man, I'll just pray for you, and then we don't? Pray for him right then. We're heading into this 40 days of prayer thing. It's going to be incredible. When, I mean, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And I want to see God work. And so Moses got that and says, Moses prayed for the people. One sentence. It wasn't an addition to anything. I love that it just stands alone. And look at this. And the Lord said to Moses, isn't it amazing when we stop and pray to God that he speaks back to us? Like, it seems like a foreign concept, but it's not. he does if we'll listen. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So I don't know. This seems kind of like Harry Potter magical stuff to me, right? Make this big thing with a bronze snake and wave it around like a magic wand and everybody will be healed. Like, that's the picture that comes to our mind. That's the, the picture that these snakes show up carrying torches and they're marching towards you, whatever, however fiery snakes do that on fire. Uh, and then they come after you and, and you get bit and then you look at this. Hey, I'm healed again. Like, it's almost like this little game you could play. I'll just go mess up until I get bit. Then I'll look at that and I'll be healed. And, I can, and we play that game with God all the time. And, and they were doing it here in this. But... Can, can we look at this maybe in a deeper way? Can we look at maybe it's not this magical, mystical, magic wand that Moses was waving around, but there might be some deeper stuff to it. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about these snakes for just a second. Now, there, there's a, there is a parasite. I don't know. It, it, it's called guinea worms. Now, I don't encourage you to look it up on Google like that section will probably do quickly, because um, it's gross. It's gross. But there's guinea worms are, are this parasite. And, and here's what happens with guinea worms. Guinea worms uh, are in um, stagnant water. And you drink this stagnant water and these parasites get in you and they begin to grow. Guinea worms can grow up to 40 inches long in, in your body. And, um, and they'll get to, to uh, about 40 inches or whatever and then they want to reproduce And lay their eggs so they're looking for water to do that. So now they need to get out of their host and get back into the water. So they begin to make lesions on legs and feet so they can emerge from your body. Like, why are you telling me this in church? (laughs) There's a point, I promise. So. The, these guinea worms, which just are, are now boring holes out of you instead of into you. I mean, they're like the triceratops of worms is what they are. They just come and attack and they're going after you. And so they're coming through and they're, they're, they're going to pop out of you is what they're going to do. And people, it just burns. And so people get into the water to get rid of it is what they do. So they get back in the water, which encourages the guinea worm to come out and lay its eggs and start the process over again. Like that's, that's a legit thing in our world, which is crazy to me that they do that. Now, every president, after they are done with their presidency, has some sort of deal like a a center they build or whatever that's there, they're a project they're going to go conquer. Well, Jimmy Carter has the Carter Center and in coordination with the health, with the World Health Organization, um, they are this close to eliminating guinea worms from our society. Matter of fact, in 2017, they made an announcement. There were only two confirmed cases of guinea worms in 2016 in the world. Now, some of that has to do with fresh water being available and different things like that. But but two reported cases. And here's how they reported it. They said, we just want to let you know that all of our research, all of our work, all of our efforts have, have produced that there's only two cases of fiery serpents left in the world. Did you say fiery serpents? It's like, that's in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? Like, you said fiery serpents. And and that's what they're called here in Scripture in this. and And so... Do you have this deal? Could I argue with you on this right here, that, that maybe evidence would support that it wasn't snakes with torches biting the people, but it was guinea worms burning their way out of people's bodies. Stagnant water, they're walking in the wilderness. It's the only water they have. No water, no food. So they drink the water they come across, and maybe these guinea worms are fiery serpents coming out of them. I mean, it could be argued for that. And so there, it's the place that would happen. And, and so these fiery serpents, guinea worms, appear. People start to die. And so they, they confess this sin. Moses, please help us, man. Go to, go to God and pray for us. Do something that's there. And so he does. And God says, build a bronze snake on a pole. Well, can, can we maybe even look at more about that and, and why this pole would have to do with guinea worms? Um, because it's how you get rid of them. Let me me explain. When the guinea worm begins to come out of your body and it begins to poke its head out, the natural inclination that we would have is to grab that joker and yank it out of our body, right? You're not going to pull 40 inches out at one time. It's going to break, go back in, cause an infection that could lead to death. Like that's just reality there. So what you do for a guinea worm is this. When the worm is sticking its head out, you, you pull it till it gets tight. You don't yank on it. You put like your lawnmower, when you're trying to start your lawnmower and it has to get that tight part in there, you know what I'm talking about? So you, you grab it and you pull it till it gets tight and you take a stick and you wrap it around that stick and then you wait because it won't go back in because it's wrapped around the stick. Then the next day you pull it a little bit more, wrap it around. The next day you pull it out a little bit more, wrap it around. Like that's how you get it out. It's a process. It takes time. It's not an easy thing. It's not even a pleasant thing, but that's how you heal these these that are there. And, and it's interesting to me that that... That happens over this process. That's how you do it. And, and so um, Moses now has to deal with this situation. And I'm not saying he's a medical doctor. I'm saying he's obedient to what God's telling him to do. And now we get this idea of disappointment in leadership. Moses being this leader, he has to get everyone onto God's agenda of what healing looks like. So could it be that it's not a magical wand that you look at and you get healed? Um, could it be potentially that it was a reminder of what you have to do to be healed? Could it be that he was a reminder that he built this bronze snake, wrapped it around a pole, held it up, not so they would be magically healed in an instant, but so they would be reminded, don't forget to pull the worm out a little bit today. Don't forget to pull it out a little bit today. And every day and every day, it was a reminder of God's provision that he's faithful every day. He's not a magic wand. He's a faithful father. And he'll do whatever it takes each day to help us grow and be healed and be stronger physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever that is. Could it be argued that that maybe was the case? Could it be argued that that's what it was, that this, that this bronze serpent um, was, was actually the conduit of healing and reminder of, of, of a great moment in Israel's history that's there um, that, that was that? I don't know if you've ever actually thought about this, but that's not an unusual thing for us. Have you ever seen the side of an ambulance? Have you ever been to a trainer, an athletic trainer? And what's the symbol for athletic trainers? Got it right here on my shirt from Round Rock's Athletic Training Group. Maybe maybe God knew what He was doing a long time ago. And right here in front of our own very eyes is a reminder that healing takes time. It's a reminder that healing may hurt, but being healed doesn't. But are we willing to go through the healing to be healed? Or do we just want a magic wand that makes it all better? Just take this pill and you'll be fine, right? Mix this drink and you'll be fine. And that's not the case at all. There's so much more to it in that. And so Moses, I'm sure, was probably disappointed. Like, really, God? Like, I want to just hit a rock and make water come out because that's worked for me. (laughs) I don't want this thing I have to hold up every day as like an administrator and remind them, hey, I'm sorry you're not going to be completely healed today. But if you'll do this, you'll get one step closer. I'm sorry, you're not going to get everything you wanted today, but you're going to get one step closer. And he holds that up every day. Now, the scriptures make it sound like it was this magic wand. I don't think it was. I think it was a reminder of God's faithfulness and the disappointing aspect of Moses' leadership. He had to disappoint those people every day until they were healed. And then they learned how to rely on God. They learned how to trust in him for that. They didn't need a God that waved a magic wand and make them feel better. They needed a relationship with the God that was going to walk through them every single day of life, regardless of what you deal with, regardless of anything along that. It was a reminder of the faithfulness of God that was there. So Hezekiah destroys something that at one time was ordained by God. Well, that's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? No, because he's seeing these people are worshiping idols. Yeah, they're doing the Asherah pole and they're doing these bales, but they're also worshiping this symbol of healing. Now they're worshiping the healing instead of the healer. Their eyes went off the right thing onto the wrong thing, and he had to destroy it. He had to do something very difficult. And I can imagine what was happening there. Like he, he makes this idea and, and says, we're going to get rid of all this stuff, and he breaks this thing. And I'm, I'm sure that uh, they're like, we need to have a committee meeting about that. We'd like to bring you in, Hezekiah. We're older than you. You're kind of young and probably not real smart. Um, so you might not know history very well. Do you remember who Moses is? He was kind of significant for us. He made this, and you're going to destroy it. Are you sure that's the wise thing to do? I know you're new, but that's pretty critical to our people. Like, you weren't alive when that was happening, so you don't really understand. Like, they're questioning everything about it. Like, hey, man, spiritual renewal you're wanting to do, we're all for that. that I think that's great. Just don't change things. Because we're really good about talking about wanting spiritual change, but not taking the action behind it. God, I want your best. And well, I want you to give this up. Well, I'm, not, I'm really comfortable with how things are right now. God's not comfortable with how he loves you so much, he won't let you stay the way that you are, but will continually push you to be more like Jesus. And sometimes that doesn't feel good. I'm sorry if that doesn't feel good that I said that, but that's where he's at. And so he's proposing this destruction of something that's there. It's, It's amazing to me if I were to say, hey, I want to show you this rated R movie right here. The reaction that would happen in this room would be, no, you can't do that. Or if I start dropping some F-bombs during this sermon? You guys be okay with that? Probably not. But why is our music and our living rooms and our cars less holy than this room? I'm talking to me as much as you. I, I don't want you to think I'm trying to judge you from up here, but I'm trying to recognize that we need to put our eyes on what's going to give us the best, not what's going to make us feel good in the moment. And when we can grab a hold of that and get this, that, that Hezekiah in himself was more interested in what, how he could influence people to God than what they thought about him. He, he was more concerned um, that the people focused their worship on God than something else, that he was willing to destroy something sacred, a sacred cow, so that their eyes would get back on the true God. And I don't know what it is in our lives that we need to destroy, that we think our sacred cows or this holy thing that we've, we've become to worship and, and we got to get out, out of that. Um, Uh, I'll ask this, how can you use your influence to move people towards God's agenda for their lives, knowing that it's going to be disappointing in that? Speaking hard truth can be disappointing. Asking hard questions can be disappointing. I I get those opportunities many times in student ministry, and one of my students starts dating somebody else that I don't know, and I have no problem interviewing that young man and asking him hard questions. What are your intentions with this young lady? How are are you going to make her more like Jesus? I don't know. Why do you like her? She's pretty. Okay. But there's more to her than that. And if you, like, these are hard questions. They're uncomfortable. But we have to be willing to have those hard conversations. Ask the tough questions to move people onto an agenda that they know they want to go to. There's resistance to get there. This is what that same guy that defined leadership, this is what he said. He said, if you can hold steady long enough, remaining respectful of others' pains and defend your perspective without feeling you must defend yourself, you may find that in the ensuing calm, relationships become stronger. Relationships become stronger when you genuinely invest because you love them, not because you're trying to control them. And that's what people want. Isn't that what we want? want to be genuinely loved? And we'll do whatever it takes for someone that genuinely loves us. But how quickly we forget how genuinely God loves us when he asks us to do uncomfortable things. When he asks us to break down the idols that we've put in front of him on that. So in all that we do, we need to point our kids, friends, neighbors, co-workers, teammates to Jesus. To his agenda. How can you use that skill to gain gain greater influence? How can you use your influence to point students towards Jesus? How can we do that? How can we do that? We have a great opportunity next week, starting with the 40 days of prayer. Like, you want to see those things happen? Then, like Moses, immediately your response needs to be prayer. And so often we want to have conversations with each other, and that's great. But if the conversations with each other supersede conversations with God, we're out of line. Prayer has to be the foundation with which all of this change takes place. Why did Hezekiah have favor? Because he walked with God. He heard from God and obeyed, even when it was unpopular. Even when the crowd said, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I should, because I care about you enough to point you to Jesus, not to some relic. I want to point you to Jesus. And we have an opportunity in the next 40 days of prayer next Sunday to go deep with things of God. It might be uncomfortable. Let me ask this question. How many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Hopefully everybody raised their hand. All right, okay. How many people flossed this morning? Oh, there's not as many hands up now. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. I don't like it. But you know you're going to get a bad checkup when you go and the dentist is in there going, I can't even get this between your teeth, right? Because it's going to make you bleed. It's going to hurt. It's going to be uncomfortable. But if you want to have the healthiest mouth you can, you do that. Well, I don't know how to pray. I don't don't know how to read the Bible. It's uncomfortable. It's like flossing. All it's going to do is make you better. And then you learn how to do it and you do it becomes a habit, and it makes you better. That's where we're headed with these 40 days of prayer and getting into God's Word, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen. But before we get there, we've got some business to do with our idols today. And so I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what are the idols, even the good things that you've put above God that need to be laid down on this altar today. What is it that we need to put out there and go through this process of everyday healing? What do we need to pull on that guinea worm just a little bit today to get him out of our system so we can fully give our lives to Christ? I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond.